So tonight I, would, I wanted to speak about uh, how the mind distorts reality. <clears throat> and uh, I hope to do this in a practical sense. I think we've all seen how when light moves uh, from air into water, there's a refraction that takes place in which the denser water slows the light down and it seems to alter the course of the beam. <clears throat> And it's very observable, uh, very um, clear. It's also, uh, we have more obvious forms of distortion that we think are fun and uh, some of the uh, optical illusions that we are familiar with. We know that the distortion is unreal, but it's so convincing when you see it. It just looks absolutely uh, true. And then you see what's actually happening. You think, how could I have been fooled? You go back and look at it again. You're still fooled. It doesn't seem to correct itself, does it? <laughs> and then we've also been to perhaps carnivals or circuses where you stand in front of a, a mirror that makes you, you know, a foot tall or 10 feet tall or six feet wide or whatever. And you, you laugh at that because that's an obvious distortion of our perception. So, look around. This is a distortion of perception. Reality is not of this shape. We have lived under the influence and disguise of our perceptual feel, and we have taken reality to be what it seems to be through conventional speech and through our cultural input, cultural and parental input. And we have assumed it takes this shape. We think that that is reality and it's coming at us. But what's actually happening is that we're forming reality as we uh, move, as we uh, think. And so, uh, so much of Buddhism, all of Buddhism, really has to do with correcting the distortion of reality. And so in some ways it's a scientific process in the sense that there is a correct orientation and alignment to reality. And just, we have been fooled. Uh, How have we been fooled? Well, through the sensory input, each of those senses are received and uh, the message is sent through neurological billions of neurons, electrical impulses, each carrying a spark of energy. And somehow all of those billions upon billions of neurons form a cohesive and coherent picture of life that we perceive through our senses. After it's been organized by virtually every aspect of our memory, perception, thought, our narrative, our story, our aspirations, our uh, assumptions, all of that, all of those neurological firings form what we perceive reality to be. And then we take that as a fact. And every one of us take it to be a fact, although each one of us perceives a very different inward reality than what we, what we, oh, I'm going to say that the stage is up here and you're down there. But besides that, what we think about it, how we distort it, the feelings we have about it, the actual assumptions we make about it are all individually determined. So, When we start feeling uh, the 
uh, rub of distortion, uh, when we start feeling the pain of living in a distorted world, uh, that calls our attention. That's what gets our attention. It's not, we keep, for a long period of time, we, we uh, think that the distortions, the, the pain, is not due to the distortions of our perception. They're due to some problem, uh, some sense of, of external rub, you know, that I have the wrong boss, the wrong partner, you know, the person next to me is moving, that's why I can't sit still, the on and on. And so our tendency is not to look directly at the distorting process, it's to blame the, the pain of the distortion on other causes. Because the last thing we want to do is to upset the basic assumptions on which we hold life. We don't want to do that. We want to have other reasons for life not working for us than based upon how we perceive it. That seems too uh, intimate and too uh, real for us somehow. So we'd rather have some convenient excuse to uh, shove the blame off on and then just kind of go along hoping that our sunny day will someday appear. <laughs> so I just want to show you how distorting it is. Just to bring it into uh, experiential mode. Uh, so many of you have had a very uh, trying day. If I know second days on retreats can be difficult and often a lot of emotional arisings and a lot of uh, burdens, stresses, a lot of uh, distractions in terms of, of, of um, thinking and uh, what you need to do and what you haven't done and blame and shame and all of that. Kind of the whole Monty, the full Monty of our minds. Day two is a full Monty of our minds. <laughs> uh, and that's all been imaginative. Period. Period. And that's the extent of the distortion. That didn't occur. It occurred as an imagination. It did not occur in reality. This is what occurs in reality. There's only two things you can do. You can abide in reality or you can imagine. Those are our options. We have no other options. Now we begin to see how we've been standing in front of the circus mirror. And it may get our attention as we look through the course of the day and we see the difficulties that this distortion has created for us and how we have abided within the truth of that distortion, how we have festered within it, and what the Buddhist, what Buddhism is really meant to do here. And here's an even, here's a question that runs even deeper. And that is will, whether we will correct it or not. Will we get out of the path of the mirror?
when we step away from the obvious distortion of perception. There's a lot at stake because imagination can create and does create your world. So I'm not trying to make it easy. I'm just showing us what's, what's in front of us, what the obstructions are. Our beliefs, our assumptions, our purpose and intention for living, all of it imaginative. And so when you really sober up to what Buddhism is attempting, the the touch of it, the question really is, is have we suffered sufficiently from those distortions to want to move forward, to want to move our lives forward? Most of us feel the effect of the distortions, but don't really want to change our lives sufficiently to correct them. We want to have... We, we'll deal with minor inconveniences as long as we can get you know, the stress under control. Or as long as we can just alleviate some of the tension in our life, some of the difficulty in our life, let meditation make us and allow us to be a little better person, and then I'll move forward carrying the mirror, the circus carnival mirror with me. And so, so it's, it's a deeply intimate and personal question as to whether we are and have suffered enough. And it's not one that I'm trying to uh, provoke uh, an answer from you, but for you to consider, for you to look at this. And it's not a right or wrong question. It's a really a question of maturity. It's a question of spiritual maturity as to whether we have reached a point in which we can no longer tolerate distortions. And when that point comes, you realize that what lies at the other end of the distortion are the facts of our life, the facts. And that aligning our lives to those facts, to live in alignment to the facts, is really what Buddhism is attempting to do. And we then realized how important it is not to distort the facts, which is why honesty and integrity, precepts and all of that are so important in Buddhism, because any of those are further distortions of the very facts we're trying to align ourselves towards. Not to be good people, but because this is at stake here. This is reaches very, very deep, very deep inside of us. And I think that we can teach meditation in terms of, of slight adjustments to our life and slight modifications to our, to our difficulties, but really where the Buddha is pointing in his farthest reach and where where I think it's important for all of us to at least hear is that this is a total correction, a total paradigm shift. Now, some of you say, well, paradigm shift. Let uh, Let me give you an example of a very 
um, superficial paradigm shift in the way I'm speaking about it, but a, one that gives you a sense of how radical a paradigm shift, what a, a paradigm shift actually calls upon us to do. It said in uh, 1942, after the bombing of, of Pearl Harbor, was it 41 or 42? 41? 1941, uh, FDR called in the automakers in the country. And he said, okay, so we have to start producing tanks and airplanes. And he said, uh, I don't remember the number, but he said, we need 10,000 airplanes and 20,000 tanks by, in three years. And the automakers scratched their head and said, well, I don't think we can do that, Mr. President. Uh, you know, we have enough going on with just producing automobiles. And uh, the president said, uh, FDR said, no, no, there will be no more automobiles made in those three years. Paradigm shift. See? And in fact, we produced twice as many planes and tanks is the allotted number. But there were no automobiles made for those three years. This is a paradigm shift we're in here. It's not a light tampering. You can use it that way, and many of us probably use it that way for the majority of our spiritual journey, but that isn't in its heart of hearts where it's pointing. And so I want to look tonight about where, what, what are the distortions that allow us, once we begin to perceive them, and if we, we can deny distortions for a long period of time, and it's the denial of the distortions which I think is uh, inc unconscionable. I don't, I don't mind knowing that you're not willing to change and just saying, I'm, gonna, I'm in this for behavior modification, and uh, that's it. So just leave me alone. That's fine. It's honest. Right, But denying the distortions is just simply closing our eyes. And the world can't stand blind people. Not when everyone closes their eyes and pretends that life is different than the way it really is. That's the sense of blindness I'm pointing to, not the lack of sight. And so it's important for us to feel how important... See, the Buddha... He lived an imaginative life for his first 29 years, full of pretension, full of endless possibilities, full of fantasy. And then he sees life how it really is. He has insight. And he goes, geez, I can't live this way anymore. I have to change because I've been distorting the truth of what life is. I can't do that. And so he, it was so compelling for him that he changes his lifestyle in accordance to what he saw. So when you really, when it's very deep within us, when it's very urgent within us, when it's very compelling within us, changes will have to come. I'm not suggesting that changes are necessarily that you leave your family and become a recluse. I don't mean that at all. But inwardly changes and you can actually keep the external conditions pretty much the way they are. The same job, family, 
relationship, but inwardly there is a transformation that has to occur. And it's that inward transformation that is the scariest form to us. But there are a few principles that we have to abide within in order to even be willing to look at the distortions as they are occurring. And I thought first I would just talk a few, a little bit about the principles uh, that allow us to be able to see the distortions instead of blaming those, that pain upon external uh, events. These principles allow us to begin to see the real cause of distortions themselves. And the first one is to know the difference or knowing the difference between thought and experience. We aren't going to be able to see the distortions by staying within the imaginative way we think about life. Because the imaginative way we think about life is the distortion. So we aren't going to be able to philosophize ourselves out of the philosophy we've created that's created the pain. It requires us going below the level of intellectualization into the heart of the experience of life itself to be able to get an insight as to what and how the imaginative way we've been viewing life has been distorting it and causing it to be as painful as it seems to be. And so what we do is we start off very gently in meditation, just knowing the difference between the experience of breath and thoughts about the breath. And if you're relatively new to meditation, that's a very difficult distinction to make. In fact, I teach beginners uh, classes every year and because I want to hear what a beginning mind it's been 40 years for me, so it's, it's been a while since I began, but I want to hear what a beginning, the difficulties of someone who is just beginning. And many of the difficulties follow a, a certain uh, similarity. One of them is very common, that I just don't know what you're talking about, the difference between thinking and experiencing. I don't understand that. We have locked those two into simultaneousness that when we think, we think we're actually experiencing. We don't see that there is a difference between the experience we're having and the thoughts we're perceiving through. Hmm? Of course my thoughts are my perceptions. And all the, much of the struggle we have worked with today uh, and yesterday in terms of being able to know when we're thinking, to know when thoughts are arising, has to do with that nuance between the experience and the conversations we're having about the experience, which color the experience according to our what? Our beliefs about it, our opinions about it, which are distortions of what the experience really is. All beliefs and opinions are distortions. They're your opinions. They're not the truth. And so to clear this thing up, we have to have a bare knowledge, a bare awareness. Bare meaning a pure awareness, not clouded with the knowledge and basis of our past opinions about something. So we begin to get a sense of that. We begin to get a a direction for that, and that encourages us to continue 
in this very tedious process, in the beginning it feels tedious anyway, of bringing our attention back to bear upon the breath or the body sensation as opposed to thinking our way through. Thinking has its enjoyment. The payoff of thought is you have your own world. That's a huge payoff. You can go anywhere. You can do anything in your thinking. You can go to last year's vacation or next year's vacation. <laughs> and it just creates a context of enjoyment and excitement that can keep you aroused and keep you uh, uplifted much more than the drabness of in, out, in, out. <laughs> so who wants that when we can have this? And it's only because you see that having your thoughts distorts reality that you're ever willing to give them up. It's the pain that drives the growth. And you begin to see the value of, of pain in our practice. So that's the first principle, and that principle will go as long as a spiritual journey lasts. Because the subtlety of how we perceive and the influence of the 10,000, 10 billion neurons firing is extraordinarily subtle in how it holds and confiscates and distorts the perceptions we see. Let me just give you another example of that, which I'll talk about a little later if I get there. You're seeing me now? Distortion. Complete distortion. There's not two of us in this room. Is, that is a distortion of perception. Your assumption of me, you here and me there or other people outside of you, complete distortion. Oh boy, it seems real, doesn't it? Okay, so let's move. Uh, the other one has a particular Western disadvantage to it, and that is that we, we have a kind of, of, um, of a doubting reservation in ourselves. We're not sure we can do it, for one thing, but we're not sure it's worth doing another, and it's, they're not... We're not completely convinced that it's something that we want to give our whole attention to and our whole being to. So that which holds itself in reserve continues to distort reality because it's not joining the general search and insight that is needed. It's not a package deal. Part of you weighs out of weighing in. And when that happens, that doesn't allow a complete reorientation, the complete paradigm shift that's necessary. This has to be energetically uh, 100%. You just you have to just give yourself your whole heart over to this, really, for this to be completely corrected. And for a long time, we just we want to make sure that this is true and if it's safe and on, on and on. And it requires a different kind of faith than what we are used to. It requires releasing the certainty that we, our mind has always counted on to take that next step requires a kind of surrender, a kind of joining, a kind of willingness to be out of control. And that's difficult for most people. And so there's a lot of tension within that possibility that we have to work with. 
And a third one I spoke about um, at some point a little bit, but I want to just flush it out a little more. And that is, uh, this is an engaged teaching rather than uh, uh, a teaching to, uh, than following a teaching. This is to be engaged in, not to be followed. It's, in other words, if you follow a teaching philosophically, it feels right to you. It feels uh, correct and, you know, kind of, there's a rightness it feels. And there's a philosophical satisfaction that truth has because it takes us to that place in us that knows that it's true. And that place cannot be completely covered up. So when you hear the truth, it resonates with you, which gives you a sense that you're on to something. But for some people, the satisfaction of that philosophical alignment is sufficient. And they follow that, uh, but they don't engage in the transformations necessary to actually change themselves into what is being asked of them. And that, again, that, uh, that partially that sense of holding ourselves in reservation. But you can see that keeping a philosophical understanding of what this teaching is about distorts the teaching because the philosophy is your opinions and your beliefs and all of the knowledge that you've created around that particular philosophy. And the philosophy has nothing to do with that. The teaching has nothing to do with the philosophy. And so it... Again, the engagement and what we're doing here and every one of you are doing it is you're starting to engage in the process or continuing the engagement you've already started and you're moving it forward and you're beginning to really uh, uh, learn how to, the nature of your experience itself, firsthand, insightfully, understand what is occurring. Insight is not an intellectual understanding. It's a immediacy of knowing. And it changes you in a way that philosophies never can or never could. And that's necessary. Very necessary. And the final one that I just like to, these are preparations for seeing really, is um, there's a, there's a, um, an intentionality, a, uh, a, um, a, a, an inward pulling that Narayan spoke about last night. There's a, to want to know what is true. And that's deeper. It takes us deeper than wanting what is comfortable. And so to, to, to be able to feel the shift in ourselves, uh, because the truth isn't necessarily going to make us comfortable right away. And yet there needs to be this maturation beyond just moving towards what is comfortable and easy. And that's difficult for some of us. Some of us have lived a life in which we have based the purpose of our life on making it comfortable. And to give up that ideal and to give up the rationale and to give up our ways towards it feels like it's too radical for us. And yet, there's also a pull in us, again, as Narayan was speaking about, that is intrinsic to us, that, that aspiration of wanting to know what is true. Wanting to know what is true. And that, you can feel it taking deep, it'll take you through comfort, because comfort is an obscuration to truth. 
So it takes you deeper than that. But it's that aspiration, that intentionality that pulls you out of that, the, the, uh, where we are just floating and on being soothed. We want life to soothe us. It takes us down further. And that's a necessary uh, principle for us to invigorate, to stimulate in ourselves in order for the teaching to really touch us. So these are all ways that we can work with the teaching, with our, with our limitations. No, you say, well, I don't have that. You see, you don't, none of us have it to begin with. We all develop it over time. How do you develop it? It's that you start looking at how we depend upon comfort for our salvation and whether it works. Just look at the assumptions you've made about life and see if they work. That's all that's necessary to take you to the next step down. Just ask that basic fundamental question, is what I'm doing working? And don't blame the fact that it's not working, which for most of you it's not, on external causes because it's not the weather, right? Or the person next to you. There's always going to be somebody next to you and there's always going to be the weather. You're always going to have a boss, and you're never going to have the perfect partner, period. <laughs> well, now we can get serious about this. <laughs> and so we begin to move ourselves into the distortions of reality as we sink below the surface through the actual experience of reality and seeing how it is that we how the philosophy creates a different reality than the facts that are in front of us. And we begin to see that certain principles arise that are very common to Buddhism, very well known. They aren't the only principles that arise, but they're good ones and on which Buddhism has based much of their practice theories for generations. And the first one is that we, in, what we have taken to be inherently impermanent uh, uh, it, it, what we have taken to be uh, inherently permanent is really impermanent. We begin to see that. And that our assumptions, we begin to see that when we assume life through the visual concepts that most of us do, that holds life, freezes it, fixes it. It's a bunch of nouns that we see. We see nouns. Form is nouns. From, from, a, from a mental frame of reference, all form is noun, is a noun. But when you experience that form, it's a verb. It's in flux, it's in movements, it's in change. It's, it's, not, it's not fixable. But then we fix it, we say, oh, I just experienced the impermanence of I, fixed me, just experienced the impermanence of existence. So we go back up to the safe level to have our observation point of view instead of moving ourselves down and letting come what may. It's all impermanent here. Let's see what the world looks like inside, outside, all around from the sense of impermanence, abiding within impermanence, to be impermanent. To know ourselves as a verb. To take nothing for granted. You see? You see where this moves us? 
it doesn't become, it too quickly becomes a philosophy because it hurts too much in terms of our old perceptions to stay down there. So we pop up to a safe level and then claim reference from that safety about what we just saw, thinking that now we've captured the essence of the inside in our philosophy. I'm talking to the three-month courses and the 10 and the 15 courses and the 45 courses that you've taken, as well as the beginners here. Why? Because why do we do that? You see, there's a promise. There's a promise that's being fulfilled in keeping things permanent. What is that promise? It's, immor it's immortality. We don't have to die. If we can just freeze everything to be nouns, nouns are impermeable to change. All the, there's the occasional earthquake, but that's just karma. Right? This is something else, see? The payoff, we lose our immortality. Oh, I don't know about that. Like it's safe. We like it safe. I'm playing with this, but it's very. These are these are. It's very serious in that sense. It's very compelling to actually see this. It moves you, moves your heart it vastly. It just really moves your heart to see this. Changes you completely. It's just. So I'm not glossing over the difficulty. And still, I'm encouraging you forward. Even all of that, I, I'm, I'm doing this. Come, come, come on, come. Come this way. Because ultimately, your life depends upon it. And I don't just mean your physical life. I mean life, life. The life. And so the second we take what is incapable of satisfying is satisfactory. That search for contentment in us. Forever that search for contentment. Many of our interviews have to do with that search for contentment. Why? Because we're still lost within this transfixed idea that somewhere out there will be the satisfying moment. It, as the commercial says, doesn't get any better than this moment. And yet, let's just roughly say 100 people in the room Average age, 40, 4,000 years of history. If anyone has found that perfect moment to be lasting, please raise your hand out of 4,000 years of human history. We should be able to find that moment if it's there. Oh, hmm, nobody raised their hand. Hmm, that should say something, shouldn't it? You know, I was reading where Olympic athletes were asked, they said, you can take a pill, if you could take a pill, and that pill would assure you first place in your Olympic 
meet. So you'd win the gold medal, but that you would also die by taking that pill. Would you take the pill? 50% said they would take the pill. <laughs> That's the perfect moment. <laughs> I'm reminded when Faust was uh, the devil, Mephistopheles came to Faust and said, okay, I want your soul. And Faust said, you can have it. He says, but there's a condition. And uh, he says to the devil, he says, please bring me one experience that will be everlastingly perfect. And you can have it. You can have it. And of course, Mephistopheles couldn't find that. So Faust saved his soul. What is it that's going to shake us from this inevitable search for contentment? You see, the mind, this perceptual distortion of the mind keeps telling us that it's out there somewhere. But that's a distortion. That is the wrong message. That is like being lied to your whole life. You want to believe it because you want your life to be purposeful in that direction. But it's a lie. Now what do you do with that? Do you admit the lie or do you keep going? I mean, I'm old. I've been doing this for, I can't, right? You see the, I don't want to, I don't, don't ask me that one. Because this contentment stretches, the contentment that's promised by the Buddha is not is not momentary. It's not uh, trans, uh, conditional. It's not fleeting. And therefore, it's not embedded only in form. Hmm. And then... Finally, the distortion that I have taken to want to elaborate on for the rest of my teaching career is taking what is in, lacks independent existence as independently existing. Because I think this one holds the kernel. This is the essence. The assumption of self. The assumption of you there and me here. That distorted assumption. In one survey, New York Times survey, 50% of the population had an insight that showed them that they were more than what they had taken themselves to be. They'd had a mystical experience, which took them out of their self-frame of reference. 50% of the population it's enormous majority or a sizable portion of population. But that's not the interesting statistic. 80% of the 50% who had the experience never wanted that experience again. That's the amazing statistic. Because it shook the apple cart. It was too much to hold, too much to handle even though you've seen it, even though it's been seen. 
You see, the Buddha said these were deliberate distortions. We have, we have uh, conspired together to keep these going. This is one that I think is very flimsy because in our hearts, the intuitive sense of our hearts is very different than this, isn't it? Intuitively, when you set your when you set your sight, your visual observations aside for a moment, and you listen to something that's more intrinsically a part of your nature, you feel that something here, the way I see, the way I visualize life, isn't complete. You sense that more and more. And that pull down to that intuition pulls you out of investing in the forms of expression of separation. I was uh, mentioning, uh, Narayan and I were exchanging childhood stories and that early on in my youth, I had the sense that uh, uh, when I was maybe seven or eight, I said, God, I'm trapped in here. You know, I can't get out. And I talked to my friends. I remember talking to my friends, and nobody had that experience. Nobody felt trapped in there, but I felt trapped in it. And it got, I thought, well, maybe, you know, it's just me that's trapped in there. What well, is just me? <laughs> but it, I think it was a precursor of, of, a, of, something, of something that was, uh, has been the instigating uh, a motivation for practice for me. It said as long as we hold ourselves central, we're, we're the central casting, right? Everything comes in this way, like a funnel. And we're central to everything. Every sight, sound, smell, taste, it all comes in this way. How can we not be egotistical when everything is coming into me? My first thought out of the morning is I. You see? But is it true? Have we never want to question? We, don't want, we want to question from the essential sense of I. We want to question, you know, how's the I doing? Can the I improve? But we don't want to question about the sense of I. We don't want the questions to point too close to the I. It gets shaky. I was listening to the NPR Radio Lab. Uh, comes out of New York City, I think. And they were the question was, "Who am I?" You can look it up on. It's an interesting uh, hour program, I think. And they were interviewing psychologists and psychiatrists and neurologists and, and everybody that had any sense of who they were. And everyone, everyone, everyone seems. To, to know pretty much who they were. The one neurologist, the, the neurologist I thought really, he said, well, you know, in the formation of the sense of self, there are 10 billion or 100 billion neurological uh, firings of neurons. He says, it's as reasonable to say that there are 10 billion of you as to say that there are one of you. Because each holds a piece of the image. 
So now we open that to a possibility. You see, that undermines being contained as a philosophy because the, th- the sense of self is only, can only manifest from, from a knowledge base, from a philosophical point of view. And if you undercut the sense of self, the philosophy falls with it. Whereas from impermanence or from unsatisfactoriness, you can, you can still maintain a philosophy of self, even though you may have seen the impermanent nature of things. But in this one, you can't do that. That's why I like it so much. It clears the stage. And so it need not be frightening because we're already well into its discovery. As we begin to see the mind as an impersonal process, there is still a sense of someone watching, but as this whole thing starts evolving, it starts undermining wherever it is that we place that sense of watcher until finally the watcher has no place. But there is a continuation of watching. The awareness doesn't get diminished. It brightens. It expands beyond any particular perspective or any particular position. And then we understand the possibilities and wonders of where this could take us. It's within each of our reach. It's within each of our our reach. And may it be so for all of us. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? As we commonly share this moment of stillness, feel the power, not of form, but of the formless stillness. Feel it as the bedrock to all experience. All experience arises out of it. Knowing stillness shows everything in relativity.
Thank you for your attention, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.